You are now listening to Vibe Selection with Kyra, where you can get the real on today's hot topics. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra, and today I have joining me award-winning and high-profile publicist, Tracy Lamori, vibing out with me today. And today we will be discussing her start in public relations with her start in activism, how she built her career from the ground up, and her help in exonerating Jimmy Dennis, who was on death row, and so very much much more. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today, Miss Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Okay, so I know that you're from um, Canada originally, right? Yep, so- that's right. And stuck here. I shouldn't say stuck here, but I've been here over the border for the last year and a half without travel. Normally, I'm all over the place, including down in Cali. So I'm missing you guys. Oh, <laughs> you're a bi-coastal girl. You got it. <laughs> Usually. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your upbringing in Canada. So, yeah, I was born in Ottawa, the nation's capital, where I lived till 10. And then I moved to Toronto, which is, you know, the real mover and shaker city. It's the biggest city in Canada, um, the most diverse city, one of the most diverse cities in the world, not just a little bit. It's huge strength. And one of the biggest things in my life growing up and a huge advantage, I think, for everyone who lives in the city is, is its diversity. And it is so multicultural. Like, I know I've been everywhere where it's multicultural, too. But I mean, Toronto is I'm so proud to say you go on a bus in Toronto. Toronto, for example, and obviously there's a power structure everywhere and there needs to be, you know, correction and everything, but you go on a bus in Toronto and it's hard to say who's the minority, who's the majority. There's literally, if there's 20 people, there'll be like four black guys, four white guys, four Indian guys, four Chinese guys, you know, Arab guys, like literally just, that's how I grew up. And if I go somewhere where it's not like that, I'm uncomfortable and find it really odd. Just yes. really, so that's a huge part of, you know, just my upbringing. That's just the norm. And, um, you know, I get to grow up with all that, you know, food from everywhere in the world and thinking from everywhere in the world. And that's the um, mosaic I grew up in. You know, they say America's a, melt- a melting pot. They say Canada's a mosaic, like a mosaic of all the different pieces together. Anyway, so that's my background. And I'm an international award-winning publicist now, but I never planned to be. And I was just in entry-level sales. And I was an activist with a little college radio show with my husband, Dave Parkinson, when we came upon the case of Jimmy Dennis that you that you referred to was factually, actually factually innocent man who was on death row in Pennsylvania and was not a big case. People weren't talking about it. It was very not known and, you know, in a little corner of the internet and a place that he paid to be listed somehow when we were searching for links about things, you know, that mattered, anti-racist things and, you know, things that we wanted to share, um, anti-poverty things. Back, we'd had a radio show a few years before that the show is no more, but we still wanted to have a voice on the issues we cared about. So basically it was the early days of the internet. We were just looking for links, you know, places that we could we were, we made a little web page and we're just linking to other things that, of information of value. And somehow we found this where Jimmy Dennis was saying, Hey, I need help. I'm not looking for a pen pal. I'm not looking for a girlfriend like these prisoners do. We're literally, I'm literally innocent. And I need this is the only way I know how to reach out. And my husband and I, I don't know what, you know, caused us to do something about it other than we thought originally, gee, how innocent can this guy be? And I guess because we'd recently had the radio show, so we were still in that sort of information gathering phase as well as activist phase, we actually wrote the letter to the guy on death row. And that was completely out of our 
you know, previous experience, but we wrote the letter to Jimmy Dennis to say, you know, what, what is this? And he wrote back 18 pages, single spaced on both sides with all the legal documentation he had in the cell at the time, which was enough to raise anybody's eyebrow to realize, wait a minute, this is actually really disturbing. He didn't fit the description in height, weight or skin color. He's very light skinned brown man. But the description said dark skin, like very dark skin, like some of the actors that they named. Um, and the height was completely off. Height was, you know, anyway, you can look at the details, but there was enough information in the very beginning. That we were like, wait a minute, just from what they sent what he sent from the information he had in his cell. From there, we started looking deeper and deeper into it and became involved. And all of a sudden, you know, there we were starting a, a media campaign, which led to all this stuff that we are now. So it's hard to tell that story in a short version, but that's kind of how we got to where we are now. And, you know, that's the introduction to the Jimmy Dennis and how he became important in our life and how he and ultimately he was freed in 2017 after 19 years. And now, by the way, people should know he's a, R&B artist in Philly getting some major media attention. So he's got some great songs out that people can please go and look at, you know, Jimmy Dennis music on Instagram and check all that out. So it's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, you know, it's really sad seeing how, you know, in the prison system in the United States, there's so many African-American men and women who have been railroaded. And for those who are not really familiar, you know, um, the prison system started after slavery. So Absolutely. it is literally built for slavery to enslave people. And, yeah, to and the death penalty, to go further on that, absolutely. And this is no exaggeration. You're right. The prison industrial complex is literally enslaving people today, for sure, on a racial basis as well. And the, the, the death penalty, to go further, is a direct, is a direct correlated, directly correlated to lynching. It literally is. So do some study with that if anyone wants to learn more about that, because it, it, it is a direct correlation to lynching. And that's what we support when we support the death penalty. So, yeah. And support for the death penalty stays a mile wide and an inch deep because, of course, everybody, you know, when you hear a horrible crime story, and obviously Jimmy Dennis was factually innocent, so we're not talking about Jimmy Dennis, but just the widest story about the death penalty. When you hear a horrible crime story, you know, we all... Um, you know, identify with the victim, obviously, you know, in the victim's family. And um, so it's easy to emotionally react and we don't see what they do under that guise because most of the time they're doing, I mean, look at the case of Jimmy Dennis. They told that victim's family, Shadell Williams, 17-year-old girl who got shot for a pair of gold earrings, that they had the right guy when there's supposed to be two perpetrators. And the whole story, you know, was just wrong for 20 years. They told their family that they had her killer. Wow. And, and just while somebody went free. So that's the more victims, you know, you know, as well as the person that's being ignored, which is someone who's going through literally hell. Imagine wrongful conviction. Then imagine being on death row for 25 years, that dehumanization where you've literally been told, you know, you are so, you know, worthless that they're going to kill you. We could kill you. Nobody cares. And the abuse that you get through the, you know, with an accusation like that of killing a 17 year old girl, can you imagine? And an honorable, ethical person who did not do that, who's a father and a brother himself, and, you know, a son who, let me tell you, respects women more than I think any man I've ever met. You know, I would say he was probably the first man we visited him on death row that I heard back in 2003 say that used the word misogyny in a sentence. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> absolute wrongly like you know can you imagine what that does with the human soul and you know he always said never never give up and so for anybody having a hard time getting through this or that honestly never never give up because 
just don't do it. You never know what's going to happen. He's everyone thought, you know, people, there's been other people. And like you said, this is not just Jimmy Dennis. This is endemic across America, you know, with people of color being with being railroaded for certain. And I only know about the death penalty. Absolutely. Across the justice system as well, you know, for all kinds of reasons, even when it comes to the death penalty, absolutely. When it comes to the death penalty and all the time. And so when you think about that, yeah, it's it's something that people need to pay attention to. Because like Jimmy always said, I could be your brother, I could be a father, I could be, you know, and he is a father, brother. And now now we call him brother. And he calls us now he's free. And says, how's my niece and nephew doing? And, you know, so we're all family now. But it was a long, hard journey. And it's a lot like you brought up. A lot of people are still fighting that and they don't have anybody to listen to them. So it's an endemic, you know, giant issue. So I'm glad that you mentioned it today and that we're talking about it here too. Yeah, absolutely. And for those who are unfamiliar with uh, the Jimmy Dennis case in 1991, at the age of 21 years old, he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of 17 year old Sherdell Ray Williams and spent 25 years on death row. And he was ultimately released at the age of 50. But so many years of his life has been also lost and missing. And it's unfortunate that, you know, a young Shardell lost her life as well. But in this case, I feel like two people lost their lives, not only Shardell, but, you know, Jimmy Dennis because he was only 21 years old and he had his whole life ahead of him as well you know Mm -hmm. so it's just really sad both ways now I want to kind of get into I was reading up on this situation and I know that you know Jimmy Dennis he suffers from PTSD because Mm -hmm. of all those years being in prison and the abuse that he suffered at the hands of not only correction officers but some of the inmates and I believe he also lost 30 percent of his hearing while he was in prison which he never shared I still want to cry when I hear that because we're 20 years we were talking to him every week and on the phone and letters all the time he never shared all that stuff with us with his family and we were like close 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 like family right mm-hmm. but in all that's called with us with his family and even now i'm like why did you not talk about that and he's like number one you could you know he, he says he felt like if he was shared that with his supporters some people would have it would have been too much for them and that we would have wanted to help and we wouldn't have been able to not help and that anything we would have tried to do would have made it worse and that he wanted us to be focused on getting him home but now I'm like, but man, you know, you went through all that alone. You never talked about that. Yeah. That's, and he's like, that was a different, that's something you guys couldn't even deal with. You know? So yeah, I, I learned that in interviews and I'm still like, how did we not know all that? And, you know, you know, you think, of course that was happening, you know, but if we would ask him something, you would just make it like, you know, somehow that it was, you know, not, he never say it was a problem, but somehow we would just talk. And then when I think back, how did we not, but yeah, he, he, he didn't share those things because we would have, what would we have done with that information? We wouldn't have been able to just say, Oh, okay. Hope you're okay. We would yeah. have thought we had to do something or try it. And you can't, it's crazy, you know? So I don't know. It's a nightmare. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah, that's the, the part that still, you know, makes us go, wow, like, that's what he was dealing with all that time, as well as everything else. And what a strong person you have to be to still have your, you know, your shit together, essentially, no matter PTSD or not, still be the strong, ethical, you know, thinking person you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure he feared retaliation from those correction officers if he would have brought that information to your attention. And like he said, what could you really do in these situations? Because you're dealing with the whole corrupt system. Yeah. And we're not there. And there at the end of the day, it's them and you. And yeah. 
Yeah. So starting off your PR career, you started off your PR career ultimately with this case. So what were some of the pitfalls and challenges you faced when helping fight for Jimmy Dennis's freedom? And I understand that the prosecutor actually on this case, uh, Roger King, was known for railroading black men and once had the highest record for obtaining death penalties, death penalty convictions in Philadelphia, actually. And African-Americans make up about 63 percent of the people on death row in Philadelphia and 35% of individuals executed in the last 40 years were actually African-American. Did this fact make it harder to seek justice in his case? Yeah, I mean, we had no, you know, we were naive and so when we first got involved, like I said, we had no understanding of the justice system. We had never dealt with that before other than just reading about Mumia and, you know, and all that. Like, I mean, the debate, we didn't know about the intricacies and how, just how honestly, girl, how evil it really is and how some of these people have no souls. I'm not even kidding. Like, it sounds like rhetoric, but we would have thought that, oh, well, you know, oh boy, look, a mistake. They've got an innocent guy on death row. Let's make sure they all know about it. And somebody, you know what I mean? And they're going to fix it. Well, you know, Trunga, like you said, this Roger King is well known. Well, it was well, well known for, you know, for this kind of stuff. And so were the two police that were involved that Jimmy names in podcast, but I, you know, can't remember their names offhand right now, but the two police, the DEA that there, there was, it's, uh, that, that they're hugely corrupt and not just in Jimmy's case, in other cases, including one of another man on death row and other men who weren't on death row. So yeah. And plus Roger King, he used to, when we, he used to have pictures apparently in his, in his office of the men, including Jimmy Dennis, you know, an innocent man, and at least one other innocent man that we know over the time that he had convicted that he had sent to death row and he had a picture of them in his office with a big x through them wow you have to be a soulless person to do stuff like that right like how do you i mean it's just it's unbelievable like and, and and you know and no they didn't they're not rushing to you know make things right even now he's still fighting for for um for compensation not that mm-hmm. and i can tell you people always say oh you can never pay them back for that and you can't and i can tell you you can't because I, i've been there with him and not there i mean i was not in the cell but i mean i watched him every single year every single year as the daughters went from six years old and nine years old or however they were when they he sent me their first picture you know, that we had for the years and years until they're literally 20 and something with kids of their own. And every year he's like praying for the truth to come out this year and that year. And we were all 20. I mean, I know it because we met him in 1998 when my husband Dave and I were 28. Jimmy was 27. And he got out when my husband and I were 47 and Jimmy was 46. Mm-hmm. So I know those years, you know what I mean? I wasn't in jail with him, but I mean, like, when I think about, we met him that year, I remember him writing at the end of every letter, he would always pray, praying for the truth, whatever year it was, right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of 98, for every letter in 98, praying for the truth, 98. And then we have a bunch of letters, praying for the truth, 99, and then praying for the truth, 2000. Get where I'm going. And then it was praying for the truth, 2001. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh my God. How is it 2009? We've been doing this for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Still there, 11, 12, 13. 2013, the judge finally agreed with us and says, yep, he's on all probability innocent. This is a big case of corruption. And yet he's still there another three and a half years. It's like we're living in a, like, it's, I don't even understand it. You know, people are like, how is it happening? I'm like, I don't know. Apparently that's American justice. But finally the door is open in 2017. 
and he comes out. And by then, you know, we, it took me like, you know, in some ways, I mean, that was definitely our first campaign, but we never thought of it that way. We were just still young activists doing, you know, sales and whatever work we were doing for other companies at the time. And we were getting major media attention for Jimmy as advocates, but that we never thought about making any of that work a career. And I never would have wanted to get paid for the Jimmy step or the advocacy step. But around when I was about 41, we were all about 41 when Jimmy was still in prison, and, but we were getting closer to him coming out. It finally hit me. Hey, maybe I could, you know, this is like 13, 14 years that I've been writing successful media releases. It finally hit me. Hey, I could probably use the skills that I built doing that and build, you know, and do, do media stuff. Cause I know how media works and most people don't. So I can do it for creatives, you know, like musicians who need to get in media, artists, entrepreneurs who need to get in media, whoever has a media message, other activists and started doing that freelance. And after a couple of years that was going well, including <coughs> one of my first clients, believe it or not, I talk, you may have seen this when I talk about it. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I still can't believe it was a professor Angela Stadler Williamson, who's the cousin of Rosa Parks. And she's wow. a award winning right? And she hires this dumbass white girl from Canada. <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. You know, right? You know, Rosa Parks, I mean literally like she's like uh, like a myth, not even like a real person, just a myth. You know what I mean? Right. I used to years, there's a Canadian song called Thank You, Sister Rosa. And for years on the anniversary of her death, before I ever thought of her as family or people I ever actually meet, I used to write Thank You, Sister Rosa Parks on the anniversary of her death or whenever it would come up. And, and then I meet Angela Sadler Williamson, who's literally her cousin. In fact, oh. yesterday was her anniversary and she shared a tw- oh. 20th anniversary. She shared a picture of her wedding and with Rosa Parks sitting there in the corner with a big smile on her face. Oh. And so she had hired me because she made a movie about called My Life with Rosie. And mm-hmm. oh my God, here I am. You know, and I tell you, to this day, it's still a surreal highlight of my career. I went to Detroit Film Festival after two years of working with her to meet her for the first time because she came in from California. And I went to Detroit. It's like five hours from me over the border. So I went to Detroit to meet her for the first time. A lot of Rosa's families from Detroit. So we were showing the film festival, the Detroit Film Festival. There I was with literally, oh my God, I'm sitting in a two, in a row at a film festival with two rows of Rosa Parks direct family members. Wow. Like direct family members watching this movie about Rosa, where they were, we're all watching it for the first time on a big screen. And then if that's not enough, at the end of the movie, she thanks me in the credits. Like my name's on the credits. Oh. And I'm like, literally like a surreal out of body. I'm like, what the heck, you know, <laughs> seriously, how did I, how, what? Exactly. So I've been not, not like, I still, I'm still like, uh, uh, how would I say it? You know what I mean? That's like, so yeah, I've been ble- honestly blessed and honored by, I don't know what the, should be put in like a position like that. And somehow anyway, so, you know, with that now I'm obviously super confident I'm in the game for real. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing it. We're getting me, obviously I'm doing well. I'm writing amazing press releases. And I'm also doing work for other clients and just, you know, here and there, whatever. And then I finally um, stopped freelancing and built a little general partnership, me and my husband. And that kept on going well. And finally my business consultant is like, no, you're doing like, you know, you could be doing way better. You're still acting like a freelancer, but you're getting international clients and blah, blah, blah. You got to scale up. So we incorporated in COVID. So now we're Inc. So now it's Lamore Media Inc. Just still just me and my husband, but we have the framework now to become job creators and, you know, to, to get it, to 
you know, be bigger and do more. But again, we're always going to be heart centered and every project we take on is still, you know, a project that the activist me would be proud of. They don't all have to be activist projects. Some of them are just, you know, cool people getting out of corporate and thinking of a great idea and building a little freedom for themselves and others, you know, but they're ethical, good people, you know, with good ideas. Something about the project or the person or whatever resonates with me or I wouldn't be doing it. I'm always going to want, you know, activist me to be proud of this new corporate me idea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we already know that you're an activist and you have marveled in activism throughout most of your life concerning issues with racism, fighting for uh, kids with special needs, right? And politics mm-hmm. and so, 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 so much more. But what ultimately brought on your passion for activism? You know what? Somebody asked me this the other day and really, honestly, like, okay, two things. I'll start by saying, you know, I always remember, like, I think as the kids, we all have that impulse. You know, it's not fair. We use that not just about ourselves, but we recognize as kids when things aren't fair, right? Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I always remember thinking that, that racism thing anyway, that to me, it's not like a big, you know, oh, you're so great to fight racism. No, it just it's just stupid. It never made sense. I don't like stupidity. You know, I don't like people who act are stupid and unfair. And racism and inequality of women and all that stuff, it's just not obviously it's just not fair. It's not right. Clearly, people need to treat each other better, obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. I always thought that as a kid. Right. Like, you know, and that never changed that passion that like, you know, how when you're a kid, you're a little enraged by by unfairness. Yes, definitely. People tell you Life's not fair. And you start to go, oh, OK. No, that same passion when you're like, but but I, I never lost that. <laughs> Still fighting, you know, so that was part of it. And then also, and I think then John Lennon, which, you know, back in the day when you, I was a 80s kid, not a 60s kid, but I was a huge Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the day when you're really young and you actually listen to what your your idols say, well, I picked not, I picked a pretty good idol. Do you have to have an idol? Because what he said was don't have idols. And, you know, if you like what we're doing, like, you know, the whole peace thing or, you know, whatever, he was an activist for a lot of things people don't talk about these days. And he always said, that's great if you like what we're doing follow us but don't, but you know don't stop there you do something and if we like what you're doing we'll follow you basically it's on all of us and then one of the i can't remember who said it but it was one of the great american black female writers and i don't want to misquote who it was so i won't say it all but it, she, the quote is and if you google it um activism is the the rent we pay for life on this planet and I always thought that was really striking. It's not like about being good or you're a good person if you do this or whatever. It's more like, like if I meet a celebrity, for example, you have a big platform and you have a thing. I am like super unimpressed. If I've heard of you, but I can't think of what you've done mm-hmm. in terms of anything. If I've heard of you and yet I don't know at least one thing that you care about to say, to do something. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to be Greta, whatever, or you have to be, you know, a huge guy, but you should at least, if you have platform, whether you're a celebrity or on a personal level or whatever, you know, you, are you doing anything with it or are you just talking about your hair? Mm-hmm. Are you doing, you know, are you doing anything to make this planet a little better than it was when you found it? Or mm-hmm. so I feel like that's a, incumbent on all of us. And the bigger our platforms are, the more responsibility we have. Absolutely. You, what are you giving back to society? You know, exactly. Yeah. How is that beneficial for others or yeah. yourself? 
And it's true. I mean, absolutely. Like, I don't care how big a star you are. It's like, okay, that's great. Yeah, you know, I like the movie, but okay. Now. But if I'm going to actually meet and be impressed by somebody now, it's going to be like, it's not going to be because they were a good actor in the movie. That's great. I mean, sure, you're good at your day job. Awesome. A lot of people are good at their day job, but what do you, you know, what do you do? Who are you now? What do you care about? What are you doing? You know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So being from Canada and working in the U.S., do you feel like racial injustice is prevalent in your native Canada as it is in um, the United States with, as you were dealing with the Jimmy Dennis, Jimmy Dennis case? Or do you feel like it's kind of the same across the board? Well, see, I always wanted to say, we always like to say America, 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 you know, and America is some way, I mean, it's so much more obvious and blatant. I mean, like, I mean, American races are some other kind of breed. I'm telling you, they're like right out there and, you know, it's, it, out in the woodwork. You know, so in some ways, they're not as hidden. But, you know, we can't say there's not racism, like, you know, and all my you know friends of color that have shared their stories, especially this year in the light of, you know, the, the raw emotion that came out even more because we were all at home staring at the same screens in the light of George Floyd and everything. There was a lot more reaction to it this year by the mainstream than, you know, we activists have seen in other years, you know, and other, because to us activists, George Floyd, we were like, uh-huh it happens all the time at first it's the same old same old you know what i mean in some ways because we know this shit jimmy dennis was saying the same thing when i first called him but he's like yep you know but then the mass re- reaction from the mainstream where people who it was just a weird year right mm-hmm. and um what was i starting to say oh my gosh i lost my train of thought thinking about that so the the justice system, how is it different in the how is oh, racism? Oh yeah, so a lot of people started sharing because I was under you know naive impression that you know Canada was so much better, and it is better in terms of the fact like because in America is frighteningly blatant to the point where like I'm afraid of I'm literally afraid for my American friends of color sometimes like an actual fear about what they might deal with on the street. So in that sense, it seems like America is writ larger and bigger and scarier and more. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's no, you know, perfect thing here. There's a lot of racism here too and hidden racism and, you know, a lot of uh, shocking racism that, that I, you know, my friends of color, I was like, I don't know what you're so shocked about because even though I've, you know, fighting this stuff for years, I always lived on a planet where I thought that we all mostly agreed, you know, like generally that it was a mainstream thing that everybody was not racist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that the people who were racist were people that were like, idiots and that we all agreed they were idiots and that they needed to be corrected and then i learned all of a sudden you know during this last year that unfortunately a lot more people than i thought were a lot more racist close to the surface and this is not obviously surprised to people of color you know mm-hmm. so i think there's a lot more racism than we want to admit in canada and certainly in aboriginal communities will tell you we have a you know apartheid in south africa was actually based on the in the canadian indian act and the way canada treated our first nation so we have a huge you know, ongoing shame in that regard. So we have nothing to really be bragging or pointing fingers at, you know, and our justice system here, if you have, if you look at the native population in it, it's much like looking at the, Amer- at the American black population being overrepresented in prisons, right? But at the same time, you know, we there's, you know, having said that, there's also a lot of things that are a lot worse and frightening in America. The fact that the DAs in America are elected officials, we don't have that in Canada. So that, that makes a huge difference in the way they behave and the way they convict and the way they act, because they're, they have 
they're not looking at the justice system. They're looking at the vote because they know that in four years, their opposition is going to come up and start talking about he's soft on crime. In fact, Jimmy Dennis was just telling me today, an hour ago, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. people, if you're interested in this topic, look at what's going on in Philadelphia right now because mm-hmm. there's a race going on and I don't have the name. I'm in Canada, so I'm not up on the exact name, but there's a race going on right now for DA between a guy who's gotten in, he's been in there for a year. And when you hear a prisoner justice person like me praising a DA, fall down on your ass because it's never happened. And Jimmy <laughs> Dennis, too, he's actually up there doing a press conference with this new DA tomorrow, trying to get him back in because this guy is ripping the justice system apart in, in Philadelphia, trying to get, you know things right to the point where the fraternal order of police is freaking out they're like doing all kinds of political shit against him saying he's soft on crime no because they was they're supporting this new guy or sorry they're supporting trying to get the guy in who was in before the corrupt guy that was in when all this stuff was going on the corrupt guy that forever excused everything they did and allowed it now he's running again this corrupt guy trying to get you know jostle this guy who's actually been trying to change things out of office to the point where every wrongfully convicted black man from Philadelphia in the last you know 10 years is doing a press conference tomorrow with the current DA to say, no, we need to keep this guy in because they're trying to get this monster, this devil back in. Mm. You know, who is with, and that's going on right now. So, and you know what they were doing? And the reason I said that when you we were talking, when I said the soft on crime thing. So, do you know what the Fraternal Order of Police did yesterday in Philadelphia in support of their guy? They went, they got a Mr. Softy truck. You know that company, Mr. Softy Ice Cream? Uh-huh. Yes. They got a Mr. Softy truck. Jimmy Dennis literally just told me this and went to, um, and they went to the DA, the current DA's office, which shockingly, this is a guy that's actually has the support of everybody because he's actually trying to uncover the corruption, right? And change mm-hmm. it. So they go to this good, this good DA's office with a Mr. Safety truck sponsored by Paternal Order Police to give out free ice cream with the message that the DA is softy on crime. Wow. You know, and that just proves that we have a lot more to deal with in this Mm -hmm. country, especially when it comes to racism, but how our system is just so corrupt and how we really need to change that. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing all the videos that we've been seeing in the last year or so with issues with uh, Breonna Taylor and the issues with George Floyd. Thankfully, he was able to get a conviction in that in his murder case. But there's so many people that are in the situation that George Floyd was in that never was able to seek justice. Exactly. Hear what you're saying now about this situation where you're talking about where you see in the media, how a lot of police come up there and they say, Oh, we're, we, we do right. And this is the reason why we used our gun. And this is why we use excessive force in situations. And then this is, prevalent here you have a guy who's trying to do good and uncover the the corruption and trying to make things good and then you have someone trying yeah, to exactly good point and they're they're just yeah they want to stop that get the other guy in and i mean if you go and look you'll freak out in fact was it on the cover of newsweek or was it a different the, I, I don't remember exactly but the guy sean uh, the guy who's got the cover story on newsweek last week also if you go to spain i think it's sean sean he was writing about Jimmy Dennis this week and he talked also because he's been having a huge campaign against this guy he's trying to make bring national attention to what's going on in Philadelphia because it's like ter- honestly terrifying 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very so, sad yeah. for a lot of, you know, African-American men and women and just people in general. We need to be above these issues that we keep encountering over the years because, you know, the issues with race keeps coming up every couple of years, if you notice, yeah. you know, so we need to be above that. So, OK, I know that you work in many different industries when it comes to PR, but what industries do you do enjoy doing PR the most for? Oh, my goodness. That's hard. <laughs> I like, it's funny. I used to like politics, but now I, I don't do any almost anything. And I shouldn't say never, but I don't do anything in politics anymore. Because like I like, you know, like I said about an ethical individual, I like somebody who that where the message isn't going to change with the wind, you know, where it's one person or creative that has a. So I love the creatives that the creative is so fun, obviously, because entertainment is fun and splashy and, you know, it's the obvious fun. Right. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't know, I really love working with a passionate expert in something too, like a little either an entrepreneur or an author or something like a nonfiction author or an entrepreneur where they have an expert, you know, they're an expert in whatever. It's fun and strategically fun, you know, Mm -hmm. to find all these opportunities to help, I I hate to build their brand or leadership, but to literally to find little spots to get them in media. I love it. You know, two in the morning, I get a client in Good Housekeeping magazine, you know, because I get a good spot from the reporter and, you know, I'm sitting there like literally bouncing on air for like six hours waiting for my client to wake up you know so you can tell them guess what you know so that's always it's really fun to help build you know like a 26 year old client I had who never had any media and I got her in Good Housekeeping magazine the print issue in an article about I'm not my mental illness because she wanted to share a story of bipolar and how she became a life coach and so literally for the last year we've you know built her career on that she was in that and now everybody's interested in in talking to her so she's had a million interviews and articles since then and that's just you know now she's navigating the whole world that way so in terms of media attention and um differentiating herself from her competitors and building client base and actually writing jobs and been featured in a book and so yeah it's just fun that's the kind of thing i love is just sort of helping people have a voice that's what Mm -hmm. it comes down to for me is you know and I like working with you know on celebrity projects and everything too. But for me, the real fun, the real pleasure part is well, I mean, I love the travel, but I mean, the real fun in terms of like I'm a strategy girl, and I like racking up little successes and big successes, and you know that's all just fun. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'll never retire. I'll always think I'll always do something, no matter how much money I make at this. I might limit the projects, but I'll always be doing some of them. You know? <laughs> yeah. Why would you, with all this excitement going on in your life? Right. And what am I going to do? Just stay home, watch someone else do it? <laughs> exactly. And I love how you translated your activism into doing PR work, and how it was kind of unconventional, but it, it just seemed to marriage so well together with the two worlds of like using your voice and just in a different way you know right, and you never think like it's funny because i say if you were looking if you were advising someone on how to build a, a career on pr you wouldn't advise them to take on like a controversial issue on the death penalty like that you know yeah. and build their brand on that and then and then come back but it's funny because I, I it's funny like i almost I realized the other day i've literally d- twice built an international brand twice over mm-hmm. like for myself over two different things because if you'd google me 10 years ago you would have found all this death penalty stuff and all that you know globally mm-hmm. and then there was a few years it wasn't like I didn't message all the people that knew me from that and go to this I had to start from scratch 
using those skills, but I never said, hey, look at this press release I wrote. You know what I mean? It was like like a gap in between. And like I started from scratch, just started building it again, building, building. And then all of a sudden I built now. I'm pretty proud of myself because now it just shows anybody can do it. Because again, I didn't go to school for this. Mm-hmm. I just had the passion for the death penalty work, right? And then now I had, I'm just going to show you what I can do. I'm just going to, I'm going to make this work. I'm not going to work for somebody else. I'm going to, and I'm going to do it you know, by not being a corporate idiot, I'm not going to change my values. I'm still going to be an activist. I'm not, you know, I'm going to be, have a bigger advocate, call it an advocate. Now I have a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. I don't have to wave a placard in the street anymore because different voices listen to me now and I have more influence. And you know what? Now I notice that because I go on these hard business podcasts and when they, you know, they don't have any intention about talking about anything like this. They're these hard numbers guys. They love me because my, you know, media blah 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 and then like they asked me that question well how'd you get into pr i'm like okay <laughs> now you're gonna have comments on the death penalty and justice because there's no way to not tell that story mm-hmm. it's such a powerful story too you know and i'm happy to tell it thank you we're better to, i'd rather spend time on that like jimmy and i joke i'll call him and be like we just had another episode of the jimmy dennis business hour because i go on these you know hard podcasts and then we end up talking oops, it's last year. we end up talking about about that story you know, because mm-hmm. it's a, and it is a business story, too, because I also learned how to, like I said, from that perspective, take my passion in that and, you know, mm-hmm. turn it into a business. So that was the last important part. It took me 13 years. <laughs> yeah. So you were doing freelancing and then you created Lamori Public Relations and you yeah. did this actually without attending any college, like you just mentioned, or any funding yeah. to start your business. So what are some of the advantages and disadvantages when it comes to establishing your business, such as PR, without having a formal background in public relations? Um, what was Sorry, I missed the last part of what so, you said. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of not, oh. you know, attending school when you're trying to start a, a public relations company? I would say, I don't know. I'm sure they teach you lots of good stuff in school and I want to hire someone who's been there and they can fill in my gaps or whatever. <laughs> but I haven't run into any, you know, like maybe they know TikTok really well, you know, mm-hmm. but I haven't run into any any things where I thought, gee, I wish I'd gone to school for that. Except for maybe I don't, you know, write a big mark, you know, I don't do like a big marketing plan up front for three, but that'd be a waste of time. Anyway, what I do is show you what I've done. I tell you what I'm going to do. And I give you, you know, a little rundown of what you can expect over the month. And then people hire me, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, uh, I, I get, I don't know. I think when people come out of school, but they don't, they, they, they have all the education, but they don't have any of the contacts, mm-hmm. which is half a PR, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and they don't, you know, so they're really back in the first day where I was, when I thought, Hey, let me write a press release. And I learned it on Google. They've got, you know, whatever they can find online and they mostly want to come and they say, hey, can I come and intern? And, you know, today they haven't, haven't. Now I'm going to, I mean, I don't, I, if I intern, they're gonna, I don't want an intern. They're going to, I would pay somebody always. I don't believe in interns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, so I've never said yes to those intern, you know, questions. But now, now of course, at the beginning of this, now we're at the point where we can start to look at the framework of being job creators. I never have problems getting new contracts, but I'm just limited in how much I can do. But then I have to stop what I'm doing to train somebody else. But I'm going to, I'm really motivated to do that because, like I said, now it's not a problem for me to get work. Mm-hmm. And I want to start you know, sharing the wealth and I don't mind training other people to be, to do what I do. And then eventually they go off and do it on their own. That does not bother me a bit. I have my reputation. My clients will stay with me. I'll always be able to get new clients. I can work anywhere in the English speaking world. And so can they, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's not a question of competition, not, I'm not going to be able to serve everybody in the world. I'm Mm -hmm. happy to train other people to do it well, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
yeah so i want to start getting i have to stop what i'm doing for like a while and figure out how to do some you know onboarding and training and hiring somebody at some point that's one of my goals for this year yeah so why don't you why don't you like actually hiring interns well, because, you know, the idea, because I think the idea behind an intern originally was, you know, they would come in and they go student educated. And I might do college co-op students. I might consider and I'll talk about the difference in a minute. But interns, the idea was, you know, they educated and they come in and work for you for free. Mm-hmm. And um, that's fine you know, to get experience. At first, I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Sure. They get experience. They can walk away. And I could give them some great experience, some exciting VIP, celebrity, blah, 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 really good quality learning. So that's the first thing is a lot of people don't, you know, they'll get an intern and they have them do filing. They're not actually giving them anything of value to their career. So that's one thing should be job one. I do have that. But the second thing is in, in who can be an intern? Who can take on unpaid work? True. No one. <laughs> and actually say it's cool that you're not paying me but i can work well that's going to be a privilege either someone working at home fine mm-hmm. right still living at home and they're you know or, or like a really privileged person so probably you know some white college student like all the other again this is part of the reason why some industries are really white it's not because it's necessarily racism but it's like lawyers have that too you go in all you have to go an article who has time i can't do that i can't take time out from the money that the hours of my day even now feed my family you know I can, who can go and take time out to do work nine to five for somebody just to learn it's one thing if in a co-op student is different a co-op is when you're uh, you're engaged fully like you're fully uh, in school, like for the whole uh, nine to five, you know, so you would not be off at a workplace. Otherwise you're in school for the nine to five and the school might say, okay, part of your, you know, for two hours a day for one month, you're going to go and, you know, learn a workplace. So you, I haven't done this, but this, this, I wouldn't have an ethical problem with. You're going to go in there and then they'll teach you that. Then you come back and you know, and so it's inside, you know, so you're getting credit within your course for it. And it's part of your day. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to take time that would otherwise be paid time because otherwise, yeah, that's what happens is you get only privileged people who can afford because mommy and daddy pay for their apartments or, you know, people yeah. who can afford that luxury of other time when most people have to graduate and go to school like I did. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then you're also in debt from going to college. You got to pay back those student loans. So you yeah. can't afford, no. definitely can't afford to work for free. It's, I wouldn't feel right asking somebody to do all that work. You know, again, if it was different, it would be two weeks as part of your school thing and you're getting credit as, you know, that's a different story, but I wouldn't want someone to come in and say, okay, nine to five, nine to three, here, you're going to do this. And they treat intern like you're working for them and you got to do, you know, and you're not, and you're not getting paid anything. And I just think that's, I don't feel good about that. Um, that you know, I just wouldn't do that. So I wanted to wait till I was able to pay. And now that I'm at the point where I, okay, if I get a client, other, you know, just, you know, allocate a client. Okay. And the next client that comes in, that's bad. That money is going to go for that person's first three month salary. And that's it, you know, mm-hmm. and then start getting them in the, in their program. So yeah, ultimately I wanted to do that because like I said, I could get a whole bunch. If I knew I had somebody working at the same level I work at, I could get double the contracts and mm-hmm. somebody else could be, living instead of working at wherever and I don't even care if they to me I don't necessarily I would like somebody who's graduated recently to see what you know they might have learned that I, I don't know but also ultimately it's more a personality thing I'd rather hire somebody that I know is passionate that has the right personality for it that's trustworthy that's not gonna you know freak out about celebrities and they're also not gonna you know 
they're going to give the same work to the entrepreneur as they would to the celebrity. You know what I mean? I want it has to be a certain ethical kind of person that I have to really learn to. But I have to realize as an entrepreneur, and this is hard for a lot of entrepreneurs. There are people like that out there, and it, you know you have to let go of it and trust, and at some point back up and just find the right person and you know give some of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and working in, especially, I know you do all different types of PR, but, you know, the entertainment field in which you work in as well, you know, brushing up against Beyonce and Jay-Z, anybody would get starstruck. But like you said, it's having a level of professionalism and not being starstruck by that. And yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if you want to have relationships with people like that, then the the best way to do it is not to be stupid about it. Right. Like that, well, they they don't want that. You, You know, they just have to go in the room and do they be level-headed and treat everybody like everybody else and when you're doing business? Absolutely. So speaking of money, though, so what are some tools and steps you feel are necessary for anyone who aspires to get into public relations and seek profit, how you ended up being able to uh, make money off of your company? So how can uh, a, an aspiring pub- public relation strategist get into the world that you're in and be able to make money off of that? Yeah, the way I started was freelance, you know, when I said freelancing and um, there are opportunities to, I mean, now I almost never have to prospect because I'm 90% referral and, and um, repeat business. But in the, in the really early days, I used some freelance sites, which is like free, uh, freelance, which is now called Upwork. My, my first, I, I made, when I was just getting my feet wet in PR, I made 7,000 US dollars part time in three months, just picking up random contract on there mm-hmm. and then there's other ones so i think it's called yeah that's called upwork now mm-hmm. um and also linkedin uh, linkedin is i find is hugely effective for prospecting but you've got it once you once you've got a little bit behind you i guess be really careful how you do it because i've never bought or bought a service or signed up with anybody who's prospected me on linkedin because most people do it in a really clumsy manner mm-hmm. and yet if i message 20 people on linkedin guaranteed i get two clients mm-hmm. so it's a matter of really understanding don't just blanket and you know spray and pray you know like they say mm-hmm. literally look at who your prospects are have an individual not a cut based message hey bob look i see uh you do this and that listen you know what have you ever thought about getting some media attention because here here's what i do and then before you go in know a few things like even i guess now mine are all way easier when i started i was just like hey i'll do this for this much money and it was i guess i was kind of lucky to get some of them but looking back now now i already know the game i built a relationship with whatever so do your research because there are places where you can write an article and get it submitted, you know? And if you do a couple, I mean, like commonly, like regularly in entrepreneur world, in whatever world you're, you, you know, it is. So if you're going to be targeting the entrepreneur world, do a couple of articles in one of these many blogs, many places that take articles. So you've got a couple published versions of your work and say, hey, look, I can get stuff like this published about you here. I can write an article about you here. here. Start that way and start building up a body of work if you don't already have one. And um, even, you know, the good way to start is by building up your own thought leadership, start writing about things, you know, you're, you know, if you're in communication, start calling. So look for those opportunities to start building up your own thought leadership. Um, but mostly, like I said, freelance, elance sites, just start like that. Or even, you know, even smaller, or even easier than that in your own personal network. Everybody knows small business owners. They're all experts in something. So if you're, you know, your real estate agent is a perfect example. There are, um, if you, 
you know, a real estate agent, they spend a lot of money on advertising. Say to one of them, hey, you know what, instead of your this billion dollar ad budget you have this month, spend $500 on me and see what I can come up with. Maybe just a friend of yours, somebody that's going to trust in you and you and give you the, the first job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then look at things like help a reporter out. Look at things like Source Bottle in Australia. Those are... Um, are free services where reporters under deadline connect with publicists and also entrepreneurs or people who want to be quoted in whatever, where they're looking for. So you'll see often, you know, Reader's Digest with a deadline of Thursday at three is looking for uh, female entrepreneurs who to tell their story of survival during COVID or, you know, women to tell their inspirational stories of building businesses or so literally every day there's opportunities like that. So you can, you know, sign up to some podcast services, um, Matchmaker, Podmatch, Podage, and then you can find opportunities for your client who's an expert in whatever by going through those. But if your client, again, back to that real estate agent, search real estate agent awards, find opportunities uh, to get them up for awards in their industry, entrepreneur awards, women of influence awards. All these things are ways to build, you know, your client's credibility and give them real uh, you know, real value for the work, that, the money that they paid you. Mm-hmm. So networking is key in this industry. Uh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and podcasts are a huge part of that. I'm finding as a media girl, I've been doing a lot of podcasts. And originally I was thinking of them as another media, you know, radio, TV, podcast, mm-hmm. newspapers, and they are. But in addition to that, they're also huge for marketing and for networking for anybody that has um, any creatives or especially business to, to business services. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into press. So what are some ways with getting your clients out there into media outlets who are not as known in their industry? What are some ways that you use to get your client's name out there? So all so first is the traditional press release, right? And um, a good way to do that is a topical press release. Like say there's something, they're an expert. You know, you know, you know when you turn around to your friend, you see something on the news and you turn around to your friend and say, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, based on you know, an expertise you might have. So um, like I have a client who's a hairstylist, for example. I got her quote, quoted in Oprah magazine by following um, those services, you know, that I was telling you about where they're looking for quotes. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, there was a, a, a reporter in an Oprah magazine. Literally, this is a free service, Harrow. I follow it every single day, see what comes up that I can fit my clients into. I've gotten my clients in the New York Times, um, just using that free service, not even press releases. New York Times, Oprah.com, The List, The New Yorker, Reader's Digest, Good Housekeeping. You know, the list goes on. And then there's the topical press releases where there's um, something going on in the news that is going to continue to be something they're going to be discussing. But you have an angle. That's where I was saying, you know, you might turn to your friend and say, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah about that. You have an angle based on an expertise you have or an experience you have something to say about that, that further that story. So a story that is likely to be something they're going to talk about again, you're able to give them a source with a different voice or a different perspective on it. That's a topical press release. And then there's a press release where you're just, you know, saying uh, you have a great idea, maybe you have a book um, that's coming out. And instead of saying, you know, books, you know, Kyra releases book on inspiration. You would be like, um, inspiration is, you know, instead of making the book, like the product, the topic, mm-hmm. which is 
advertorial instead of editorial, you would say something like, inspiration is in short supply today, says uh, expert author. Who, and then we would put you forth as the author expert to be quoted. And I use author there. They wouldn't have to be an author. They could be um, the product instead of being a book could be their company. So if you're, that's why I said, you know, earlier, the real estate expert is that everybody knows a real estate agent. There's a ton of them. How do they differentiate themselves in the marketplace? How do they make somebody choose them instead of somebody else? Well, media, that third party credibility is a huge part of that. So you do your research to find, you know, how, where you can build up, where you yourself can write articles about them, how, where you can pitch press releases about them too, where you can send a little paragraph suggesting they interview them. So it's your job to find in this world of media opportunities that's ever increasing a ton of different opportunities for them to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. So have you, as a publicist, have you ever had to deal with any uncomfortable situations between a client you have in a media outlet, whether it's like a situation where the media is portraying them in a negative light and you kind of had to clean up the situation? And if so, how do you handle situations like that? Yeah, thankfully, and you, luckily, none of them came on when I was on the watch. Like, it wasn't like my cause that messed it up. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, Every, I, both situations where that was the case, I was brought in after, you know, where they hadn't had a publicist and something had blown up and they were like, okay, how do I deal with this right now? How do I frame this or talk about this? You know? Mm-hmm. And so I went in as a okay, tell me the situation. And like, according to the way you tell me this, this is how I'm hearing it. And, you know, from what I understand that, you know, cause I wouldn't take it on. If, like I wouldn't take on a situation, for example, where, you know, somebody said something racist and now they're, they need to be, uh, what would you call that corrected in the media? So the media loves them again. Mm. That, I'm not your publicist for that. I'm sure I could, but I'm not about that. I'm not into that. You know what I mean? So mm. it wouldn't be a situation that my situation would be where somebody had been piled on unfairly. Something has happened to misrepresent somebody or somebody's uh, in one case, somebody's previous association with someone who later showed their true colors to all of us was painting this person in a bad light because people didn't know this person, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I had also had a previous relationship with this person before they showed the true colors, mm-hmm. but nobody was painting me in a bad light because me and my intentions and my history and all that is well enough known. But everyone obviously knew when they heard it right off the bat, they knew, oh, yeah, clearly Tracy didn't know that about her or or that wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have even been at the same table. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas my client was an unknown quotient to people. And she's just, you know, an older lady, whatever. And nobody had that, didn't know who she was. So it seemed, well, maybe she's like that other person. Mm-hmm. Until I was able to go in and be like, okay, no. And I actually was incensed about it because I knew this client really well. And she was crying and like suicidal about this misconception and like really deeply hurt. They'd said other things about her that, she, that were hurtful, but she didn't even care. She was just hurtful about this. She was actually upset that someone would miss think her this way you know what I mean mm-hmm. and I was like man I hear you because I had again I personally had been associated with this person so I knew that we did not know this other person had been like you know someone to be not associated with you know what I'm saying she'd come out with something two years later that we were all like what did I, what the hell did she say Mm-hmm. <laughs> I pretty much would have canceled him for you know what I mean uh-huh. and then my, and so when I'm saying this you know my client I was like okay what's basically happening here is I see what's happening you're getting sprayed with the well-deserved dirt that that person's getting 
Mm. If I was in your position, I would probably also be getting spread with that because, like you, I had a previous relationship with them, not knowing about that, you know, business relationship. Mm. But nobody, see what I'm saying? Nobody even crossed their eyes, questioned me, nothing, because my reputation is well known in stone for stuff, right? Mm. So when people hear that, they'd be like, what? Yeah, no. So clearly that, you know. But anyway, so her, I had to, I so I had to make that proverbial statement, you know, put out that PR statement, write it for her because she didn't know what the heck to say, you know? Yeah. So I had to frame it and write And she literally was lost, like crying, like just ready to leave the industry and like her family thinking that they're going to get a brick through the door, like ridiculous, right? Yeah. And I'm like, deep breath, I'm going to write. And so I literally, I don't even remember, I wrote, I wrote a one paragraph statement saying the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Right, and just phrasing it like you know, but like in defense of her, saying this is you know blah blah, and then and putting it like her phrase, you know, she had pretty much made her own simple like sentence or two, and it's quoted her, and then I couched it in what I was saying about her, and after that it literally stopped, and I think if another publicist had said that, it might have been different. Mm-hmm. I don't think I think. You know what I mean? That's where that thing of the activist and the power publicist thing was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Because I think my word as a publicist there wouldn't have meant anything to the activist group that were throwing rocks at her. Mm-hmm. It was my activist cred that had cred there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you hold your moral ethic code to a high standard, a high regard. And that's why you're so well respected in the industry that you're in. Because they, people knew, like, if I would not have, if if it had been true to this person and, you know, like, had been anything like that they were saying, that the accusation was, that I would never have, they know, I would never have put a statement out about her. Mm-hmm. I would have returned, the, like, I would return my money to, I would return the money to a client and say, I'm sorry, you know, I don't represent you anymore, before I would defend things against my own ethics, mm-hmm. period. You, you know? Your own moral code. Absolutely. Yeah. It's my name. Yep. You have to, especially in that industry. So I want to get on to some very interesting fact about you. So in Celeb Stoner Magazine, you were named one of 500 women who should be recognized for their achievements in cannabis and featured in Candora's Celebration of Women in Cannabis. So what made you want to get into the world of greenery aside from activism? Well, I've always... I've always been a fan of the greed, I will admit. Even <laughs> <laughs> way before legalization in Canada. So Canada's been legal coast to coast since 2018, but I've been in the industry doing messaging. It's been medically legal since, I'm not exactly sure, since the early 2000s. And I've been in the industry doing uh, messaging for the early medical, the legal medical industry, um, the uh, patients primarily. Uh, I, I used to say for years, I was saying for, for cannabis, basically being a, a conduit between media and the mm-hmm. cannabis consumer, ins- ensuring um, proper messaging, really, like you know, incredible messaging about cannabis consumers, cannabis medical patients, cannabis users, and, you know, the whole cannabis world, the legacy market, which, you know, what they call the, the illegal, the black market, which they call it now that we have a legal market. Mm-hmm. We call it the, leg- the, the legacy market because words matter right Mm -hmm. so there is no black market and there's no illegal you know the way we look at the illegal market i mean i don't know what the 
mar- the players now or whatever. I'm sure there's people like whatever smugglers or whatever. But I'm talking about you know what they originally call the black market, which was the, the you know the illegal players, the growers, the activists, the advocates who got us to a legal marketplace, and that are now not necessarily in the legal marketplace. And especially there's another issue where racism is is needs to be discussed, and also you know and also just I don't even know if it's just racism, but equality as well, because there's a disturbing lack of equality in cannabis boardrooms when you talk about the legal marketplace and considering, you know, uh, women and, you know, in Canada, for example, it's, they said 97% of the legal cannabis boardrooms, actually, this was an American statistic in legal cannabis markets. And also in Canada, 97% are white and male, which is Mm. stunning. It's not stunning for boardrooms. You think, yeah, same old, same old, but when you consider this is a brand new industry mm-hmm. that we're creating and that unlike tech, which was created by, you know, who knows, a bunch of white guys, I guess. Right. Yes. Who, but, that's, but cannabis is like this is uh, number one. Let's address the women. Number one. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's a healing women. Is, I mean, in the cannabis industry in Canada, for example, we like some of the biggest players for the last decade. And I'm not talking about the corporate people, but I'm talking about the people from the ground up, the people who serve the patients, people who advocated people people who fought for the rights, people who educated to get us here, all those people, a lot of those were women. So mm-hmm. they're not in the boardrooms though. It's people that came from, you know, doctors, lawyers, candlestick makers, taking over and, and shutting those women out. And then, you know, and then people of color is another whole issue. There's a bunch of different organizations here in Canada and stateside doing important work, talking about the presence and also on different levels, some about the presence of encouraging and others talking about actual reparations going from, you know, all these money making cannabis businesses. There's still people in jail. There are still, or also what about funding, you know, black owned businesses in the cannabis space? How, you know, so there's all kinds of conversations going on because yeah, traditionally too, a lot of people were saying, and I'm not speaking for the you know black community here. I'm just repeating what I've heard some activists in that space talk about about cannabis. And you know, it, it was you know obviously black people in Canada and America had enough trouble with the police. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Without putting a big target on their back in in illegal days, saying come and arrest me. I'm talking about legal illegal weed. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of times people who had the um, privilege. You know, to be able to be brave enough to get up in front of police smoking joints and all that shit at 420, you know, which we all went to and all that. When I think about, you know, when you look at it now, a lot of the, not the 420s, but a lot of the, even in Canada, a lot of the big gatherings of a bunch of cannabis activists and stuff were like disturbingly white now that I look at it and didn't look like Toronto. Because remember at the beginning of this conversation, Mm -hmm. we talked about what Toronto looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. Very right? diverse. Mm-hmm. Right. And one day I noticed when I was looking at a cannabis event, everybody in cannabis is welcoming and cool and nobody was racist as far as I know, right? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say nobody's always a racist and, you know, there's always some, right? But you know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> people were like, a, you know, like a positive, hey, come sit down, everybody, smoke a joint community. Nobody was thinking about race or whatever. It was all, appeared to be very open anyway. But when I, all of a sudden, I looked at this picture of one of the big well-known gatherings one day, I went like, and this is in the middle of Toronto. I was like, well, wait a minute. This is a, it was an illegal gathering, like, but a very big, you know, like kind of like when high times would have things. They weren't like legal, legal, but they were pretty much accepted, like Seattle Hemp Fest in the day, you know, those kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of people, there's like a hundred people sitting around, not like the 420. This is a more ticketed event where the 
you know, within the community, you'd have to be on the groups to know about the event. You know what I'm saying? So a little bit more. And I noticed in all the pictures, we took pictures of all our friends, we're all hugging, whatever. I'm like, wait a minute, looking at the maid, I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You guys, that is like the whitest group of people I ever saw. You were like, wait a minute, what? I'm like, no, seriously, look. I know it sounds weird, right? But like, I'm a person, if I go to like a restaurant in some weird small town and they're all white, I notice that because, like I said, I remember actually thinking when I was 50, because that was the norm for me, right? Mm. I remember going the first time I went in small town Ontario when I was 15, like small town Canada, where it's like just, you know, like, a, you know, way up north, whatever, right? Mm. I remember literally being 15 going into the school. They brought my parents brought me to school there one year. Oh my God, it was a nightmare anyway. Mm. We're talking about that. I went to Toronto every weekend. But anyway, I remember the first, walking into the school, Kyra, no lie. I literally said, like, I wasn't joking. Everybody was white. There was like two Chinese girls, right? Uh-huh. Later, I found out there was literally one black guy in the school. Like, I'm not kidding, okay? But on the first day I walk in and like the whole, like, I was literally, I just saw these white people. And at first it didn't even hit me that, like, what the problem was for a second. Mm-hmm. I just knew that there's, there's all the people aren't here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I honestly took a second for it to actually process. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> they brought me when I was 15. I literally, it took me you know, a few minutes to process what, what the problem was, right? Mm-hmm. But I was like, literally saw the whole, like, everybody was white. Like I said, later on, there was like two Chinese girls and then one black guy in the whole school. When I, and so I guess I was seeing the whole entire school, right? <laughs> yeah. I, when I first thought, like the first thought wasn't, hey, they're all white. My first thought was literally like, ways the rest of the school like I didn't even realize even it racially for a second you know what I mean yeah like my brain was literally like this isn't what's going on and then I literally said out loud where's the rest of the school <laughs> you know people are like I didn't say like where's the black kids where I was like where's the rest of the school like, I was literally confused people were like what do you mean and I was like the student like where are all the students where where are the school and they're like is this the school like it's 400 students I was like wow oh. I'm thinking in my head oh my god okay <laughs> All right, a cultural <laughs> awakening in that moment. <laughs> I thought we learned there were two Canadas, and I'm not too sure I like the second one. Exactly. You know, I like the big, the big city. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where all the people at? <laughs> I'm trying to go to exactly. where the people are. <laughs> I remember the of the states. I remember when I went to New York City. once. Oh my gosh, there was a T-shirt. I loved New York. This is 20 years ago, and there was I was in like you know wherever in a corner T-shirt shop, whatever, mm-hmm. and I was like a T-shirt on it that said New York City. This ain't Kansas, and I started laughing. And the guys like, "What's so funny?" I'm like, "Cause I'm scared of fucking Kansas." <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't go over there at all scary. new york is like people and sane people and you know kansas i don't know what i shouldn't i'm not picking on kansas guys i've never been there i'm just saying you know middle america yeah i don't know i'm not you know what i'm saying not much there no i completely understand it's i mean it's the middle like you said the middle of america nowhere not much is really there you know not as developed as it is in la or canada (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, okay. Now, um, do the strategies you use when doing PR depend on the type of industry that you're dealing with when it comes to your clients? Uh, my outright strategy, I mean, specific strategies, yeah, not so much more, the so much the industry as, you know, like if they have an event, like the industry in terms of entertainment, obviously it's going to be, you know, around an event or a launch or something. And whereas with, um, um, 
expert in it or an entrepreneur or an expert or an author. I'm less about, you know, when the book is out than more about just building up them as an expert, less about the product. I always say, so the difference between advertorial and editorial is, you know, I'm not so much into if they're going to sell their product, mm-hmm. they will as a direct result of my work. But my job is to think about the media attention, the strategically placing them, to get them out there. So my job is the visibility portion, right? Basically. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not a matter of waiting for when their book is going to come out or whatever. I want to build their strategic um I want to build their credibility basically so that when they open their mouth, no matter what they're selling, whether it's that book or their job or their company or whatever they do that day, they have that credibility and that gravitas behind them. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically just building their authority. So it's, it's in that sense, it's the same across every industry, except for entertainment where entertainment is more, you know, experience based and more building them as a celebrity and entice, enticing them, you know, as an enticing, you know, figure. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know that you do. I know that you say that you hold your moral, moral code to a high regard. But was there ever a situation with dealing with the client where there was a challenge that you were not really able to handle that required more than just PR, like a messy situation where you were just like, I, I can't do this? Yeah, there was one that I was not already, they were not already a client, but a friend who'd been a past client in the political world, he was, you know, called me up about a friend of his mm-hmm. that had got herself mixed, mixed, mixed up in a, what had what was becoming a media, you know, a, a media mess, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because she was basically, she, essentially, she was a whistleblower of a bad, of a bad actor in the media, mm-hmm. but everybody was, you know, circling around her against her mm-hmm. and things were looking anyway and they were pulling up all the anyway they were making things look really bad for her and so her friend was like hey can you come in and like help her navigate this basically and so I came in and then I was like yeah this is really it's more than communications you know it's really fixer stuff so while I didn't it's not that I thought it was too much I thought that you know I, I didn't want the full responsibility alone for it I thought I'm you know, going to also bring in somebody else. So I brought in another person, an associate of mine who normally ends up, she normally hires me mm-hmm. as PR for communication to get her media attention. Mm-hmm. But she has a lot. Uh, um, I wouldn't say more because I've done it, but I just don't love it as much. She's got like a real head for that down and dirty political kind of what they're going to, what the, what they do when they get nasty mm-hmm. side. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not that, we were going to do that, but we needed to know, I needed to hear what she thought could happen. Cause you know, if we did this, what would happen there? So yeah, in that case, I brought an associate in basically, and we both that had, you know, different skills than me that normally hires me for stuff, but that we kind of uh, dealt with it together. I see. So I remember I was listening to a podcast that you were on and you were mentioning how not everybody needs a publicist right off the bat. So when do you feel like it's necessary for someone to come in contact with a a PR representative to help them to establish themselves within media? Well, I would say it's never a bad time. Like people in terms of, you know, you can't always afford it off the bat. So if you, you know, um, there are ways to prepare yourself and things you should do, like, you know, so that you get prepared for that media attention or that even that you can reach out and get some media attention potentially by yourself without having a publicist. Uh, if you understand the difference between the advertorial and the editorial and you understand what we mean when we say pitch and all that kind of stuff. But um, what, what we say, when should you? 
Mm-hmm. When should you? Yeah, so definitely. So I would say, you know, to me, there's no bad time for an entrepreneur because if you are opening up a business, you have your website, and you're taking people's money for what you do, then you are you are already an expert. So by that same confidence and that same token <laughs> that you're taking people's money for what you do, mm-hmm. you, you're ready for the media. You're ready to talk about it in media and start building your thought leadership in little ways and big ways. And like I said, that 26 year old who just started her. Um, business as a life coach with nothing to differentiate her from other life coaches except her personal experience but nothing on her page nothing so and then literally the first out of the gate first out of the gate was zero media attention no build-up she hired me the next day i got her in good housekeeping national print magazine when that went to print and then we were able to say for the next year as seen in the print issue of good housekeeping and that built literally, she's got like 50 other media appearances on that. And she's starting to get wow. clients based on that and writing. So there's never a wrong time. If you're an expert in something, you know, there's we can start building you anytime right away. Mm-hmm. But then if you, you know, if you if you obviously they're looking to sell a book in particular, you might want to wait till the book is out. So you can any articles that you get would also link to the book, you know. But at the same time, you may also want to pre-build your reputation as a thought leader so that you can go back to the media you've done it on and they'll have you on a second time now that your book's out and that happens too so and and pr is completely different what you do is completely different from marketing absolutely and again that's where the earned media so with with you once you pay me i'm not presenting opportunities for you to pay to be in media i'm not looking for if you i mean if you want to do advertising i can certainly help with your ad language etc mm-hmm. and you know demographics and all that but what i do is find you opportunities that you cannot pay so you are at being quoted as an expert immediately you cannot pay to be quoted as an expert i'm finding you know i'm getting you profiles and articles that nobody can pay to be in you're literally i have to convince the editor you're an interesting article you're an interesting you know inspiring person and i do that based on the relationships i have and also based on you know I, i'm the writer and i know but when i hear someone's story before i take them on I, I pretty much have an idea in my head about what i can do with them i know i can get this article and those three interviews and you know so right when i take them on i already can tell them pretty much how it's going to start and then from there we're pitching and we don't know what's going to happen and you know, who's going to respond and such. I see. So with you being bi-coastal and working in Canada and Los Angeles, where it's the land of publicists, pretty much, do you feel that it's harder to kind of stand out for your work as a publicist or was there ever any challenges with that? I find it's hilarious. I don't know. I've been like, people refer me all the time. And like, even before I'd ever been to LA, my first trip to LA was in 2018. Wow. 2017. 2017. But I've been doing, but I've been doing this for years before, and I'd had clients, and I, I had probably more clients in California than I did in Ontario at one point. And, <laughs> sure. You know, it's funny right and like and uh you know what it's not unreasonable it's not rare to get a call and this is beverly hills i'm like okay i guess i have a moment hello you know so it's funny i don't know how it because exactly land of the publicist i used to laugh here i am you know in the basement in hamilton ontario and they're firing hollywood publicists and hiring me but and one of my clients said to me after she fired a hollywood publicist literally to hire me she said 
you know, she, she said, she thinks she's already done everything she can for me. And I just want to see what you can do. And then she said, after working with me a couple of months, she's like, wow, you've, and I guess maybe this is partly because I invented it myself. You know, I didn't learn how to be a publicist. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't, she said, you do everything my publicist did for me and way more than I've ever seen any other publicist do. Wow. So, cause to me, I don't know what the limits are where it's supposed to stop. You know, what I, what I do for my clients, it, to me, is everything to do with their public image, how they're perceived by media mm-hmm. and people and anything that can get them out there in front of more people and, you know, and, and anything that would be impressive in their bio is in my bailiwick, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and that's great that you're able to form those connections to be able to help, you know, to build the image of the client that you're working with, because I think that's the, you know, in a land where we deal with social media, oftentimes, you know, the, the new thing is the influencer on Instagram becoming like the new it person and then branding themselves in the PR that they do there. So. Yeah. 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 People start to not know, really understand what the difference is with PR and promotions and, you know, even marketing. They don't really understand. But no, it, the, the big thing with PR and me is getting media attention, getting you that earned media. So you literally become an authority because of, um, you know, your expertise. And it's not advertising. That's the big thing to remember. It's not something that anybody could buy. Yes, you guys heard that now. It's a complete different. It's not marketing. It's not advertisement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it first from Tracy <laughs> herself. <laughs> so what is a day in the life like for you as a publicist? How does your day start off? So n- n- here in the time of COVID, it's mostly all here at home in Toronto and my or in Hamilton near Toronto, in my basement. But um, so, yeah, I start off by literally in, in bed. I open up my messages. I'm responding. I have clients from all over the world, literally from I have a high profile actress in Ghana. She's a media mogul there. She has a couple of TV shows and her morning is like my four in the morning is her nine in the morning. So I get up at nine in the morning and start I'm talking to her about whatever's going on in her day um so i have clients all over the world you know i'm dealing with everybody whatever time they sent me a message i'm dealing with the incoming messages usually first thing i'm responding to media that's answering my pitches where i've suggested they interview my clients um and so i'm booking those and sending them back and forth and you know booking that and setting those up in the first part of the day, doing the appropriate social medias for everybody, communicating with clients, uh, just dealing with any urgencies and communications. All that takes a good few hours. So this is where I know I need an assistant who could manage all that for me, you know, so that it takes a good few hours just to get into that part of my day. And then I, I'm writing press releases, which is like a media release or writing an article. Um, and that I'm, um, I could be doing research like yesterday. I was researching I got a, one of my clients that's released an amazing short film, Grace, mm-hmm. which is going to be in major film festivals. And it's got already some really, really good attention. So I was researching all kinds of reviewers. It's only been out two days. It's mm-hmm. not out to the public yet. It's just, you know, available for reviewers. So I've been researching what reviewers across North America and across England review short films. And then sending, so sometimes it's like admin stuff like that, mm-hmm. sitting there researching those and sending it out to them. Um, in other cases, I'll be on a, 
uh, I do a lot of podcasts today. I've done, I'm doing three today. I have another one in LA at five, which is funny because the one at five o'clock is one I would never have pitched myself to, Kyra. It's really? about health and fitness. And I know a lot of things. And it's in LA, girl. I know a lot of things, but I am not a girl that would be pitched on a health and fitness LA podcast. I pitched my client, Kimmy Verma, who's a hugely accomplished, you know, she's like a winner of LA Couture. Um, um, dress whatever you know awards and mm-hmm. um she's been in a whole bunch of bollywood movies and she's a, a whole bunch of stuff she also speaks on health and fitness so i pitched her mm-hmm. and they loved her and they said yep we want to interview your client for sure mm-hmm. and then the host who's an ex-nfl cheerleader and actress for some reason went and looked at, just looked at my profile and then she said oh i want to interview you about your inspirational story and i'm laughing because i'm like five foot one definitely overweight you know i'm not a hollywood looking girl when it comes to health and fitness and my i'm saying i'm joking to my daughter i'm like i'm gonna tell them everything i know about health and fitness (laughs) (laughs) what i eat on a daily all of the things But yeah, no, we're going to talk about my, I'm sure it'll be about mindset and stuff. She said it's about like not giving up with that. So it makes sense. But I'm just joking going, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in a Hollywood model show about health and fitness. People, and then I'll just let people look at me and go, what? Yeah, I can do anything. Right. Absolutely. It's funny where life takes you sometimes, you know. <laughs> So as an activist and a publicist, how much power do you feel words hold for you? Everything. And, you know, I read recently um, in Psychology Today, and this is after a lifetime of using them, I never knew this, but they said the best predictor of success in life is the ability to communicate more than math, more than anything is the ability to like make yourself understood. Mm -hmm. And I thought, huh. And that explains it. I've always been successful at everything I do. You know, that that would be key, I guess, because I'm really good at that. Absolutely. Communication is key. And what is part of that? Yeah. And what is the most fulfilling part about being an activist and publicist for you, knowing that your words hold a lot of power in them? The most what part? Uh, The most fulfilling part about being an activist. Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, just that simple fact that, you know, that knowledge that, I, that I'm blessed that I figured that out at a young age that, you know, if we speak up because I didn't, you know, come from, I didn't, you know, I didn't know people. I didn't have media family. I didn't, you know, have any way to access this stuff, but I was able to learn really young that if you, you know, raise your voice loud enough and you, people will listen. Like even when I was 15 and and then when I was in my 20s and had no legal experience, nothing. How are we on CNN, MSNBC, Court TV, CNN, all this stuff talking about Jimmy Dennis and injustice in America? We were just, you know, like, seriously, who were we to even be doing that? We had no you know, legal experience. We had no, you know, justice experience. We had no PR experience. We're just, you know, people from Canada. But again, we went out there. We did. We were passionate about it. We did. We were right. Mm-hmm. We were on the side of right and justice and we just didn't stop. And we eventually got heard, you know, mm-hmm. and so I learned that young. And that was that's a powerful thing to learn in everything. Like I just so whether that was naivety, you know, or brilliance or bravery or stupidity. I don't know. But like, thank God for all of it. Right. Because like everyone should be like that full steam ahead. Like we, we're not. There's another quote, too, that someone made that we weren't put here to live small and or to, to make other people feel comfortable by, you know, shrinking. There's no reason to do that. 
you don't have to, I mean, it's a, you're not being arrogant. You're, you know, like my friend, I always quote her, my friend and client, Anne-Marie Fisher, she said, confidence has a smile and arrogance has a smirk. So there's mm. nothing wrong with being confident. Confident actually makes other people feel confident and feel inspired, you know? It's arrogance, that, and there's a big difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And staying humble at the end of the day yeah. as well. Yeah. If someone says you're awesome, you know, thanks and everything, but you are too. You really are. And believe it when you say that. Don't be like, oh yeah, you too. No, like someone says, because people say to me, like, oh, you're awesome because I'm in media or because of Jimmy or whatever the thing. And I'm always like, no, not even because of Jimmy and I'm awesome. Well, that's an epic, awesome story for sure. And mm-hmm. you look back and it's hard not to say, but no, what I always say too is it's the same reason people don't start businesses. Why don't people do epic things like that? Not because they're not as kind as me or as good as me or as smart as me. No, it's because they're not most people don't know that they can like honestly they just don't have they don't feel um empowered it really comes down to that and i say that a lot of you here in my podcast you hear me say like whenever people are like oh it's so i want to applaud you for everything you've done and it feels uncomfortable because i'm like no like honestly it's, it's great you know like i i get that it's a good thing it's hard not to you know I'm proud of it. But at the same time, it's not that I'm better because the truth is most people would truly do stuff like that. Most people help their neighbor or do something nicer. If they thought they could literally free somebody from death row or help feed the starving or really, you know, change a, a thing that they're passionate about, they would, but they don't feel empowered. So they, and everyone says you can't. So they stay home and they watch Netflix instead. Mm-hmm. They do. We got to get our confidence up, everybody, especially in the oh, time. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the time with the pandemic where there's been a lot of job loss and people are going to have to start from scratch and find other ways of building, you know, maybe a career that they've been thinking about for the past 10, 15 years. And then now's the perfect time for people to get out there and do it. Exactly. Yeah, do it. And honestly, believe in yourself, because like I know that sounds like, oh, yeah, people say that. But I didn't learn that from a stage. I literally assumed I thought of things and did them and it happened. And, you know, everyone doesn't have that crazy death row pass story where you learn that. But whatever, it doesn't have to be. It could be you know a passion you have a skill a hobby you have whatever it is we are under the impression that we have to hate our nine to five mm-hmm. and that there's other things that we love that we do outside of that but literally truly there's no reason you cannot and should not and you should honestly be making money from stuff you love because you'll be good at that you won't hate your life you won't hate your job and you'll contribute a lot to it too Absolutely. Yes. Everybody go out there and get your passion started. Don't don't worry about the money. The money will come. Just, you know, do something that is fulfilling for you in your life like you're doing now, Tracy. And that's beautiful. So over the years, you've received uh, so many accolades. You uh, received the first place Platinum Award for Hamilton Spectator Reader's Choice for PR in 2018, Diamond in 2019, the Universal Women's Network 2020 of Women Inspiration winner for the Women in Media Award, a Marketing Award in the Magnetic Entrepreneur and Author Awards in Toronto, and a few other awards over the years as well. How does it feel to achieve these accolades for all of your hard work that you've been doing over the past couple of years? It's always awesome, but, you know, it also made me think recently, especially with Women of Inspiration, I've been talking about this too, that, you know, Women of Inspiration, shout out to them because they've been doing so many, uh, so much work to get women of all industries recognized, as opposed to like, there's some really well-known, like in Canada, there's a Women of uh, Influence, which I've been nominated for a few times, but it's by, by, it's like, by the banks and if you look at it like 80 percent of the women that are in it are in finance and middle management and banking and like they don't seem to 
really go out. Women of Inspiration has really looked at women across the industries, from women who, you know, are wearing the work boots and like in men, in men, in men you know, hard hat men industries to like women in banking, to women in media, to all over. But what it made me realize is what, when talking with her about that and why she does that is that, yes, yeah, so many women like, yeah, I'd love to get recognized. And it is important that we women get recognized. The first thing I did too is nominate a bunch of other women and I see how thrilled they were to be recognized and what a difference it made. And it has made even in my high profile, that accolade made a difference in my, in my getting other speaking engagements, my getting or whatever. So it really matters that we see women and all of, that we see entrepreneurs, we see everybody, but like we're talking about women here specifically, right? Mm-hmm. It really matters that we see and recognize each other's work and that we give out each other accolades and all this and that the world notice it. Um, because like my client said about the work when I got her media attention, she said, you've made investors take me more seriously. Mm-hmm. And so by that same thing, we have to recognize the work because a lot of us, we feel we just keep on doing the work and women, especially are afraid of bragging. They're afraid of, you know, putting themselves out there or of seeming like they're arrogant. So they we're not socialized to put ourselves up there and to, you know, to be applauded. But it's important that our work be recognized because that's where the recognition comes. That's where the big bucks come. That's where the financing comes from. That's when we get taken seriously by the big players. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, women have been through a lot for centuries, whereas a lot of it was the idea that women had to be in the kitchen or, you know, be behind the scenes. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for women to be able to go out there and seek jobs that they really like doing or be up there in corporate and stuff like that. And now we're seeing that things have kind of changed over time, but there's still a little bit of that divide when it comes to, you know, business, entrepreneurship, you know, and politics and stuff like that. But, you know, hopefully over time, it would be it will be an equilibrium when it comes to that women being as recognized in men within these different types of fields. So and we ha- it starts with us, too. It starts with having like because I personally like on a personal level, I've never felt, uh, you know, left out of the table or, or, you know, and that and that's partly because I just don't do I, I you know, I just like don't see that and I refuse to see it now and I just sit down at the table and I'm there but it's not just that easy in everybody's environment that's okay in my environments right but if you're a woman trying to get in the medical field for example like my daughter's in 30 year school wants to go in medical she's a disabled woman that's going to have to deal with people's prejudices right mm-hmm. she can't just say I don't care I'm building my own thing she's going to have to navigate a, a prejudiced world mm-hmm. you know and people that are going to be her superiors that are going to be prejudiced against a disabled woman mm-hmm. just the way so it's not always as easy as just like barrel ahead or my client maybe even realized too she you know white lady client getting financing the other day she was she said like almost she felt embarrassed to talk about female issues because she said i feel like in my life it hasn't really stopped me until she said she went for that financing and once she was all of a sudden in the big business world that we don't normally access mm-hmm. you know of those big money guys that drop a million dollars all of a sudden she realized it was like the 1950s and i was like wow you're kidding she goes no no it's like they were talking over me they were talking to my junior partner like in a bad movie Mm. you know when when i was the founder literally as soon as it came to those kind of dollars and i was like wow that's 
a disturbing thing to hear. But then we see the numbers about the cannabis boardrooms, mm-hmm. 97% white male. We see we still have a lot to deal with. Yep, still dealing with misogyny hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years later. Yeah. <laughs> so you also have an upcoming book called Get Rep. Can you tell me a little bit about the book and when it should be hitting shelves? Yeah, I'm hoping for early summer that Propriety Publishing, and they literally asked me to write the book on PR after we made um, Louina Bayer, who owns that company, her business book, um, a bestseller. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's basically the same audience as I've been doing with all these podcasts to entrepreneurs and executives. It's a business-based book, but anybody could learn from it. It's about getting your message out there to the media. Like you said at the beginning, you know, when you what you might be able to do on your own. Like, do you need a publicist? When might you need a publicist? Mm-hmm. What can you do on your own if you are doing things on your own? You know, what are some tips? To, what are some things to avoid? What are some things to know? Uh, and also some tips at the end. To, another good question you asked, which is how can someone become a publicist? There's a good third section at the end about do you think this might be for you? Because mm-hmm. if anybody in marketing and communications, who I often speak to them too, you know, marketing people, which again is totally different, but I tell I teach marketing people some tools from the publicist tool belt, like I say, on how they can build their own brand or how they might be able to use some of our tricks to do a little extra for some of their clients just the way I do extra for my clients right they aren't necessarily strictly within my realm so yeah well that's awesome well everybody you be on the lookout for tracy's book get rep that should be hitting the shelves pretty soon and i want to thank you so so very much tracy for coming on the show and taking the time to vibe out with me today it's been a pleasure to be able to have you on Oh, it was a ton of fun. Thank you so much. It was nice to almost be in California. I know, I know. (laughs) The only thing that divides us is a plane ride, but I will get back on a plane, I'm telling you. (laughs) I just got my first shot, whatever the heck, so I can get on a plane. Don't even care anymore. Everyone else is arguing this and that, and I'm just like... Really, reality is whatever they tell me to get it back on a plane, whatever they tell me I have to do, I'm just going to be like a sheep in the lineup going, will there be palm trees, though? <laughs> exactly. I can, I'll, I'll stress out about it under the palm tree, all right? <laughs> exactly. I stress out in a palm tree at the beach, <laughs> laid out. Now I can get through the summer now because we're just getting to sunshine and we'll have nice weather here for a few months. But I'm telling you. It's been a while since I've seen a whole Canadian winter right through. And I was joking that it was Hamilton Hills, not Hollywood Mountains this year. So (laughs) (laughs) in due time, you'll be back in the the beautiful, sunny city of California. There you go. And maybe and we'll go out for a coffee or something. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. So for everyone else, I want to thank you so much for joining me to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra, and you can follow me on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney. If you like to support the Vibe Selection podcast, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash Vibe Selection. Or if you like to get any Vibe Selection merch- merchandise, you can do so at www.teespring.com slash Vibe Selection. Once again, I'm your host, Kyra, and come vibe out with me for next week's episode. You guys stay safe, stay healthy. I'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for joining Vibe Selection with Kyra. Come vibe out with us again next time and hear the latest on today's hot topics. Find us on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney or donate at www.patreon.com slash vibe selection.